Welcome back to our podcast on Mask FM. You are listening to two members of the Brujas. Just kidding, it's Brujas. It's not the Brujas, Las Brujas, nothing. It's just Brujas. Today we're going to be talking about sexual violence and the circumstances around it, uh, particularly community accountability and what that means, what the failures are, what the challenges are what the possibilities are within our ideal community for dealing with rape um, and other forms of harm that people commit. So if that's going to be really heavy for you, um, feel free to tune out. I think that we kind of want to start with where we left off last time, which was talking a little bit about the instance that occurred with the ASAP crew. Um, we gave some background on our last podcast. If you're listening for the first time, make sure to go back and check that out. I'm typing on my phone right now onto blog.brujas.nyc. That is our official Tumblr handle. And about, I'd say, three or four weeks ago, we were compelled to put out this piece of writing um, that's to reiterate why we find this topic compelling and important um, is because outside of this incident, there are many um, repeated incidents of assault in our community every single day, can you imagine? Um, So I would like to start with some excerpts from our writing um, and then get into more detail about some of the solutions that we present at the end of our piece. We do not have a choice but to be better than this, nor the luxury to ignore the severity of sexual assault in our community. Today, the mass incarceration and criminalization of black men under the guise of their, quote, threatening, end quote, presence in white American society not only demonstrates the ease at which our culture demonizes and dehumanizes black men, but serves as a reference point for what and how the state chooses to enact discipline on bodies. The future Brujas envisions demands freedom from disciplinary apparatuses, from prison and the law to the medical examination rooms where rape kits are used to collect forensic evidence. The state, with a hospital, prison, and school as its major apparatuses, qualifies what is and isn't rape, who is and isn't criminal, producing measures of discipline that are neither uniformly applied across racial and class castes of American society, nor allow the conditions for the creative, emotional, and intellectual expression of humanity. White men are regularly granted leniency and sympathy by the state for their violent sexual behavior. The 250-year history of slavery in the Americas normalized the perpetration of sexualized violence by white men against black women and Native women, later solidifying the practice as a pillar in the disciplinary, racist, and misogynist ethic of the United States government. White slave masters rape black women and Native women, ultimately enslaving their children to the economic benefit of their commercial empires, whose legacies continue to dictate how power is distributed and used. Our president is an outspoken rapist. While recent events, including the trial of Brock Turner, a Stanford student who was given a six-month sentencing after raping an unconscious woman, reiterate the normalcy of this kind of behavior. For black and Latino German brands like V-Loan and ASAP Mob to succeed in a capitalist system built on a history of not only their ancestors' enslavement, but also sexualized violence against black women, is both an economic and cultural phenomenon. 
We, Brujas, are proponents of urban youth-built economies of color and are experimenting with ways in which streetwear can support radical cultural and political innovation. For this reason, we felt the need to respond to you as a collective to the viral video of ASAP Bari and members of his team sexually assaulting a woman in their hotel room. We are disappointed and appalled and refuse each and every excuse for this kind of behavior. The forces against us are strong. We do not have the luxury for this type of behavior as it demonstrates disillusionment, lack of purpose, sense of self, and self-respect. There's too much at stake for us to emulate the violent and dehumanizing culture established by slave masters against the same communities that are desperately searching for a livelihood and a new future. To strive and prosper probably meant more than most are prepared to accept. We demand that our peers in streetwear and cultural production uphold revolutionary discipline and exemplary behavior for their youth bases. We are in constant struggle ourselves. To be clear, each and every day for women, especially women of color, are filled with a constant concern with defending our bodies from sexual assault by people. I'm going to take a pause here. This is the t- this is the point that I try to reiterate to every single person that I talk to that just does not get it whatsoever. It's like, do you understand that the constant is the assault and then every single day is just in engagement with the normalcy of danger on your body. And I know that there are way more people than just women who can relate to that kind of feeling. But to not understand, especially for white men and men in general, that sexualized violence is a constant and everyday threat that our body has processed and normalized. We don't even know as women and gender nonconforming and femme or whatever presentation outside of like the heteromasculine body. And no, nobody who isn't in that body knows what it feels like to live one single day without some sort of instinctual brain, what, whatever part of the brain is affected by fear and by threats. We don't know what it's like. We've never lived a day without the constant of that, that feeling. So I literally don't know what it's like to exist in a world where my body isn't at constant, you know, isn't in a constant um, place of defense. Um, And it's like, if that's the world that we live in, why aren't more people sympathetic to that being utterly dehumanizing and also something that needs to be transformed? Every single time I bring up a conversation with people who are apolitical men in our community, they really just first thing that they go to is defending the situation, getting into the details of the, the situation, none of which I give a fuck about. I don't give a fuck under what circumstances, in what hotel room, under what drugs, under what social dynamics these people were in the hotel room. If a girl is crying and being hit, I mean, again, that's exactly the problem. It's like, I have to go and, like, bring up literally things that are traumatic to even repeat in order for people to sympathize with the idea that, like, regardless of who did what, every single day feels like a a battle, like a defense, a day of defending my body from whatever the fuck somebody thinks they can do to it. I mean, I'm just going to repeat each and every day for women, especially women of color, are filled with a constant concern with defending our bodies from sexual assault by other people. And yeah, I'll finish. I think I should finish. Yeah, go for it. Um, 
Recent scientific research shows that our DNA actually adapts to our environments, meaning that the stress and biological impact of rape and trauma related to sexual assault is feasibly passed on through generations. Daily realities include street harassment, reminding us we are constantly being sexualized without consent, as well as full-on assault by men or people with perceived authority over us. The fear of assault is embedded in the conscience of women from a young age, something we will never be free from, something that creates challenges and blocks to the free and true expression of sexuality, one of the most important elements of a person's humanity. Sexual assault and rape culture contribute to the dehumanization of all people. We Brujas believe in and support survivors of sexual assault, especially in the face of the state's violent heteropatriarchy. For those unfamiliar with the concept of consent, it is a demonstration and act of affirmation of wanting to engage in mutual sexual activity. Legally, one cannot give consent if under the influence of drugs or alcohol or under a certain age. We Brujas, however, propose a more comprehensive understanding of what consensual sexual activity looks like beyond what is and isn't legal including active verbal and physical communication between bodies. Consent is a process has many levels as does sexual assault. In order to avoid confusion, we suggest that all people engaging in sexual activity with others regularly check in to see if their partner or partners are comfortable. It's that fucking simple, guys. Finally, we recognize these types of behavior as part of a larger systemic problem of rape tolerance in the music and fashion industry. Bari and his friends' behavior are not exceptional, as many people who gain power through clout, publicity, and culture seem to regularly abuse it at the expense of women. Many times this year, we brujas were made aware of, the sim of similar behavior from rappers and designers in the New York City underground. We are still screaming, that's all my lineups! We abhor, <laughs> we abhor, what a shitty word, we abhor, oh. We, what's a better word, Rip? Um, Live editing. We reject the patriarchy, toxicity, and circle jerking that exists as a social byproduct of capitalism while proposing that individual accountability also requires community-based action. Oh, peace. Brew us. Word. Um, and there's more to that, so you should read the whole thing because we just read excerpts, but you should read the piece in its totality. Yes, definitely. And you can find it at blog.brujas.nyc. There you go. Yeah, so that sort of manifesto-esque open letter um, is, yeah, it's worded extremely well. Um, most of that was penned by um, people who are sitting in this room <laughs> um but yeah i think that we're in moving forward in this conversation um while we spoke really passionately in that piece um this conversation is one where we're going to be really honest about the fact that we don't have the answers we do not have solutions around rape culture on a systemic level um or an interpersonal level to be honest um but we are really committed to speaking having very like intense and hard conversations with people in our lives with people in the broader community um which is really all we can um personally i think all we really can do at this point but basically i'm gonna lay out some different assumptions about sexual violence first and then go into different ideologies that support something called prison abolition so um yeah just want to kind of go forward thinking about this thing 
um, that has to do with assumptions around sexual violence and sexual perpetrators and um, victims of sexual violence. And the first thing I want to say is that we're all coming from an assumption often that the victims of sexual violence are women, and I just want to say that obviously that's not the case and we don't believe that, but also that conversations around sexual violence are often talking about interpersonal violence. A lot of times there's an assumption that the people who are uh, perpetrating violence are people that don't know each other. Um, obviously there's already been kind of like a crack in that myth, which is that like the majority of people who are assailants are people who already knew the person who was being assaulted um, earlier. But I also think that there's a much larger kind of like systemic analysis that needs to be put forward that has been, especially by radical women of color, which is that the largest perpetrator of sexual violence is the United States military, the U.S. police forces, and uh, the U.S. prison system. So that means to me that the people who are most affected by institutions of U.S. imperialism are some of the people who are most affected by sexual violence in the world. Um, so we're talking about people in the global south, we're talking about people who are incarcerated in U.S. prisons, and we're talking about people who are constantly interacting with the police on a day-to-day basis. A round of applause for structural analysis because it really... I mean, I don't, nothing completely particular to what you said, but when you are able to understand things on a structural level, it becomes much less about the individual and much less about personal the destruction of um, people's lives. Many people who, well, it's interesting, I find that there's a lot of like people whose careers have continued to survive despite being losing cases on accounts of sexual assault like like Kodak Black for example um, and a lot of other rappers allowing the analysis of institute like the ability to analyze institutions and how they operate and how they actually really move power that's way stronger than the individuals um, can really help us direct our energy and our frustrations away from individuals in our community and towards the forces that shape our communities um, and the reality of our very limiting and dark reality right now is you know colonial subjects within the United States government as members of the internal colony of the United States government I would say for many queer people and people of color which are both identified in this room um, yeah, like as we experience the imperial institutional forces and apparatuses like the military and the police, I, I mean, I think the relationship between uh, the, gov- the military abroad and in the global south is probably really horrifying for some people to conceive of, but to also within that... Um, as we explore that, also understand that it's these these are the very same conditions that members of the internal colony of the United States experience. I also have family in the global south, and I've also my family is also a legacy of was very much shaped by U.S. imperial activity in the southern cone of south of the southern cone, which is like four countries in South America: Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and, um, Brazil. 
um, the south, south, southern part of Brazil, um, all experienced dictatorship in the late, late 70s, early 1980s, which was very effective at um, shaping the economic uh, direction of those countries and, and implementing restructuring programs that were about opening up the markets and creating a dependency uh, financial relationship with institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, um, as well as puppet political figures like Pinochet um, and Carlos Mendem in Argentina. And the reality of that horror period, they call it the, uh, the dirty wars, is what, what I think it's the historical term for the dictatorships of, of that area was the amount of really horrible torture um, and the disappearance of many women. So already, you know, the issue uh, the, as, as it exists outside of the U.S. and in relation to the U.S.'s imperial history is definitely, you know, deeply personal to me and um, is really really insane and is part of exactly this kind of fabric, genetic fabric that is altered literally by fear um, and is trauma that people who are existing in the internal colony but have relationship to the third world and to the US, it, US's um, economic imperial strategies abroad very much affects the emotional and um, capacity for many people in my family. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, just to kind of reiterate that, I think I think that it's really important to highlight that that the U.S. imperial structure is the largest perpetrator of sexual violence. Just, and, and like yeah. that doesn't even like I said, it doesn't even look just like soldiers raping women abroad mm -hmm. like i'm sure that's a big element and mm -hmm. like what constitutes that but it's also like when the u.s imperial government goes and overthrows a country and like or overthrows a, a leader um or implements its own set of pressures for certain leaders to be elected that's also ha has led to the dynamics of like disappearance and incarceration that also that then in turn become places where people are very um, vulnerable to milita like militaristic torture and power. So it, there's just so many ways in which, like government activity, it's not just the military going in and being actual perpetrators of sexual assault. It's also the things that seem to come after the government or the military is involved is involved abroad. Are the are conditions that uh, that create prisons and like disappearance camps, like play, like holes, like it's so crazy in Uruguay, like that right now this this place called Punta Caretas, and like it's in the capital, and it used to be a prison where people who that was a, a clandestine prison, and like nobody knew it was a prison, and now it's a shopping mall, but when it was a prison, like people were disappeared into that location. Um, and that's, you know, all a, a byproduct of imperial activity. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of heavy, honestly.
Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I need to say that some of the like some of the analysis from this conversation that I'm putting forward comes from um, this text by um, Dean Spade, which is basically called "Their Laws Will Not Protect Us," where it basically lays out various realities, um, like assumptions and myths around the prison system and the police, and then kind of responds to it with like the the reality as. Dean Spade talks about it and one of the myths or assumptions about the prison system in particular just as sort of like a segue uh, is that people who are incarcerated are serial rapists and murderers and that's why we have a prison system and this is where the analysis that that I'm putting forward comes in which is like the pol- the police and politicians are the rapists and murderers that we should be so afraid of right. and that like it's that structure that is to blame for the current conditions which is obviously not a direct answer to the question of what you do with people in your community who do harm right. but it is again a like systemic look at who's to blame for the current conditions around who's to blame and also the scale in which these activities are occurring like Mm -hmm. the scale at which the u.s government can be responsible can be traced as responsible for sexual assault is obviously going to be far larger than individuals exactly so so yeah just to yeah no that's totally true so one of the things that i wanted to talk about is this thing called title nine just to um kind of speak to people who are thinking about being involved in some sort of educational institution in the future, um, or people who are or have been involved in uh, an institution of higher ed. And it doesn't need to be an Ivy League school. It can be a city college like the one that I went to. Title IX is something that you probably never heard of. It's very, like, random. I've heard of Title IX. <laughs> I hadn't heard about it um, until very recently, Um, but basically Title IX, for those that don't know, was an education act that was put forward in 1972, um, and it was the law that put in place that you could not discriminate um, against people based on gender in the admission process of a university, not just admission, but also financial assistance. And more recently, it's been extended and has been organized by mostly students and faculty to include instances of sexual violence on college campuses. Um, So what that means is uh, if there is a student who is sexually assaulted by another student on um, a college campus, I'm sure that it also includes instances of like students being assaulted by say like staff or faculty, but I haven't ever actually heard of that so basically it means, yeah, if, if a student is assaulted by another student, um, that the college has to put forward an investigation um, and take action because uh, especially the, the instances that are being organized around are, are often um, pretty straightforward. They're usually an, an instance of a student and another student, um, one who is you know, a man, a cis man who's heterosexual, and a cis woman who's also heterosexual, um, both of them usually white, being, you know, being involved in some sort of sexual experience where consent was broken and in a very clear way. So basically, like I said, Title IX is now being organized around by people 
who are saying that that sort of instance is an instance of discrimination that is hindering uh, that woman's ability to learn in the way that it is like there's a disparity between her ability to learn under that sort of duress and like her male peers. So that's something that I wanted to just put forward as an example of something where it's like that's considered a solution to rape culture on a college campus. Why? What's wrong with that, you say? (laughs) Um, Well, the way that college campuses are moving forward with those investigations are by bringing in police departments and a lot of organizers are pushing for they're pushing for a prosecution of those assailants um under you know like under a title nine suit and for them to be either arrested or to be kicked out of campus which are two different those are two different solutions one is you know you lose the ability to continue your degree at that university the other is you're arrested, you're sent to prison. I think that there's a lot of different reasons why someone might feel like they need to go down that line. But one of the things that this person, Dean Spade, talks about is that pursuing that kind of direction for prosecuting rape or hate crimes, actually what the essay that I mentioned about is actually about hate crime legislation and why um, why one shouldn't try and like prosecute a hate hate crime or advocate for legislation that has to do with hate crimes is that it has to do with increasing the power of the state's capacity to punish Mm -hmm. people. And while um, Ariana actually put it really well in the Brujas response to the ASAB mob assault, white men obviously often get away with this. And so there's a huge kind of push by people to say, no, treat white men the way that you treat black men, right? Like, And I think that there is a lot of hurt coming out of that. Like there's a lot of like very deep, like generational trauma that's like pushing people into that place. But I also think that no one should go to prison, which is kind of where I'm going to go in the rest of this piece. Just to kind of tie up the loose ends of that question, another person who... Um, has written extensively about prison abolition. Prison abolition, um, do you want to give a really brief definition of what prison abolition is? I'll say that prison abolition is in the legacy of slavery abolition. And that's pretty crazy because a lot of people have identified how there is uncompensated labor happening behind prison walls. Um, So that's... I think the most neutral and um, I guess easiest to grasp for people who identify more progressive or um, at at the center of the political spectrum to understand that there are people in prison who are working for free under the Fifth Amendment, right? The The 13th. 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery except for when incarcerated, Mm -hmm. essentially. And so I'm pretty sure that most people... There's really actually complicated dialogue around whether actually prison labor is effective um, because, and this is this is more again towards the already left of center um, audience, but 
Some labor theorists think that prisons are in fact one of the least um, productive sites for work because there's very little incentive um, and environment for people to like actually care about their work. So some Marxists will actually think that like it's one of the most ineffective like routes that capitalism has taken to produce value and like labor labor value but this does this argument about uncompensated labor happening in prisons does appeal to the more moderate um political mind um because that's just exactly what slavery is so if you if we had to have a movement to abolish uncompensated labor you know produce primarily by non-white people in this country because there were also a lot of Puerto Ricans and um, Asian Americans. Well, that was like post-emancipation, but wow. the I could It's just so hard to talk about uncompensated labor because it's literally the foundation of American capitalism. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, we're talking specifically about chattel slavery yeah. and the abolition movement the abolition of chattel slavery um it's very easy to make a connection behind between what chattel slavery was and what's happening right now Mm -hmm. in prisons yeah now what you should talk about is beyond that fact what is abolition yeah that's really important i also think that um what you said is really interesting because it's the assumption that the purpose of prison is to extend you know, basically, yeah, extend legal, legalize chattel slavery into um, the contemporary era with the modern prison, which assumes that the only purpose of slavery, like, based on the idea that the reason why we should abolish prisons is because there's uncompensated labor happening there, means so many different things. But it also assumes that the reason why um, slavery existed was only as an econ- a form of economic domination right. um, and not like a racial a, f- a form of like racial subjugation right. and domination prison abolition <laughs> broadly I would define it as like an ideology that says that prisons should be abolished um, abolition legally under um, some sort of facilitated state project and my critique of that as um as per my anarchist roots um kind of handed down to me by many people and through many books that I couldn't even list right now um is that slavery was abolished made way for prison which was a more insidious form of domination and control so if prison is abolished what sorts of new forms of domination and control can we expect to replace it and my question is what do we do how do we abolish an open air prison where communities become epicenters of state surveillance where people have ankle bracelets where people have you know there's restrictions on their phone right exactly there is you no... can't spend money anymore. Like there's mm-hmm. literally the government could do anything yeah. to create put to put you in an open air prison right now just by restricting your access to technology. Exactly. 
So that's that's my like brief kind of like critique, both definition and critique of prison abolition in one fell swoop. But I do think that there is something very earnest about the principles behind the idea of abolitionism. Um, and I also encourage people to critique our critiques because um, I'm still learning. These are, again, conversations that are more about process than answers. So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, so a very earnest question that I think prison abolition comes out of is the question of what do we do with people who do harm in our communities? Well, um, Ryan Conrad, who is the editor of a book called Queer Liberation, Not Assimilation, says that prison abolition it comes from the question, what if it was me? What if I was the one who freaked out and hurt someone or attacked someone or assaulted someone? Um, how would I want to be treated? And that totally blows the minds of a lot of people who come from the um, assumption that the question around harm is what if it was me who was hurt? How would I want the person who hurt me to, to you know, be brought to justice? And that question fundamentally rests on a punitive system and that punitive system rests on an entire structure of violence. So that's kind of something that I wanted to bring forward. And so, yeah, I just want to kind of float this idea out there into the ether. What do we do with people who commit harm um, in, our, in a world that we want, right? In the world that we want to live in, what would we do? And also, what kinds of harm would exist in a world where, say, everyone had access to the resources they need to survive? Well, I think that there's varying different ways in which people deal with instances of, like, say, domestic violence just in their local communities without calling the police, right? So there was an example that um, my friend Victoria Law, who wrote this book called Resistance Behind Bars, spoke about in a video where a man had been beating his wife in an apartment building and the woman basically, you know, reached out to some friends and they basically moved into their house and was like, we're, we're going to be watching you. We're going to be looking out for this person. Hmm. And uh, when, when the violence didn't stop um, or, you know, it was still kind of persisting, people showed up at his job at a barbershop and spoke to the other guys at the barbershop. And the guys at the barbershop went to him and were like, if you don't stop doing this, like, you're not going to have a job anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also assuming that people in the community give a shit, <laughs> that the people right. at the workplace give a shit. But I think it's a really good example of the kind of like community support that often does happen in even areas of New York where people don't call the police because that's not an option. Um, so that's kind of just my little wrap on um, prison abolition and kind of practical ways that people are already living prefigurative community. Wow. Um, I know about transformative justice as a concept about not going to the authorities, but doing sort of community um, council type meetings, getting the perpetrator, like essentially like the person who was assaulted, like identifies a list of people that they would like to be part of the process of justice with um i think the perpetrator also lists the equal amount of people and it's a sort of facilitated conversation about 
with the, both people's closest community about what steps need to be taken and for accountability if I mean if I if I was to be in that situation I'd be like all right guys like how does 25,000 sound <laughs> yeah how does 30,000 sound or whatever you know because I at the end of the day I really really think this is very personal and it does not have anything to do with like structural analysis but like like it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier it's like after an assault is committed like that assault will rest and be with the person hopefully I mean there's I want to give everybody the complete capacity to transcend any sort of memory or experience they've had but more likely than not anybody who's been assaulted is going to live with the trauma of that embedded in their genetics that they're going to pass on to their children that they're going to live with every day and that could potentially creep into their thoughts every time that they re-engage in sex it's kind of a um it's kind of something that if it happens to you or if you do it to somebody it's going to be part of that person's life forever and affect them forever so there's really no process that legal or not that will ever bring justice to somebody who's experienced something like that it's like you can lock away somebody could kill one of your loved ones locking them away forever it will never bring that person back Mm -hmm. it'll never bring back the peace that your body once had before it was assaulted it's not gonna happen i mean Mm -hmm. it will happen but it could happen but that's a scar i think that survivors of sexual assault should be highly compensated to make sure that they have all the provisions necessary to treat themselves very well mm-hmm. um, in going through the healing processes after an assault. So that would be like for a working class person, an extra $30,000 a year could potentially um, allow that person to not work for a year, for example, or allow that person to take uh, private transportation instead of public transportation. Any Anything that's an actual material reality, I, I, I think is part of how my approach to uh, my restorative justice approach is just like cough it up, just pay money. <laughs> Word. I think that the putting forward the idea of like, ma- yeah, material support in that way as like a kind of <laughs> restoration of faith is, uh, is definitely one that a lot of people would be down with, you know. But yeah, like you said, there's, there's like, a difference between accountability and healing and there's a difference between restoration and like being fully healed right um yeah so i i think the stuff that you're putting putting forward also reminds me of this other text called the broken teapot which is the thing i wanted to kind of end with um which is basically this like anarchist critique of accountability processes and it's it's like a anonymously um published series of testimonies about why accountability processes just don't work and it ends with them talking about how it's because community is a false Hmm. a falsehood that um, there is no community there's only like hope for community and that really all we have are like circles of friends and when we instill those circles of friends with an accountability process like badge like you are the people who are going to judge what's going to happen to this person and what's going to happen to me as, uh, you know, someone who was, um, harmed, then you kind of are resting on the same kind of logic of the carceral system. I agree. And I agree with the fact of community being just a hope. 
I need to read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say it's more. It's definitely good. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't... So if not accountability and not the state, then what? Well, this is kind of what I started with, which is... We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what this text puts forward also, is that all we can hope for is that we are willing to have really hard conversations with the people in our lives. And the people in our lives, whether we like it or not, are also people who harm each other. Just speaking from personal experience, pretty much everyone I know has been assaulted in one, w- one way or another. Um, but I also have many friends who have come to me and told me that they hurt someone, or that they assaulted someone, or that they were told that by someone who they had slept with that they experienced some sort of like non-sexual, non, non-consensual. non-consensual experience. Right. Um, and I think that, that that is the reality, is that we live with people who hurt each other. And we need to figure out how to have those like really hard conversations. And it also means like su- sometimes it means supporting someone who's like done something really fucked up, not supporting them in the way that you let them slide. You don't confront them. You like <laughs> provide them with material resources or whatever. But like you say like, no, I'm not going to let you give them serious tough love. And you say, no, I'm not going to let you just like walk away from the situation. Like I'm going to force you to actually deal with yourself and if that means you know you don't like me then that's fine but (laughs) I'm still gonna try so that's like also assuming that the person you know is even willing to go through some sort of accountability process question is what do you do with people who won't (laughs) what do you do with also people I find this to be such a big issue which is like there's in our our generation experience is such a low level of value placed placed on personal transformation and personal growth mm-hmm. so much of our value and affirmation because shaped by social media and the ability for there to be actual material economy around personal brands individual brands um everything just seems to be about um being accepted and um promoted by the community for whatever that, that part so the idea of like going to community or going into oneself and being like wow this is a really important moment for me and I'm gonna grow a lot from this to be like I'm just gonna not talk about this at all because it might affect the way that like people see me see me and support me and it's like I actually really would have so much more respect for every single perpetrator unknown and known around me if there was just an understanding that sexualized violence is a constant and normal practice of masculinity in this culture and there's really no way of healing or progressing as a society without actually engaging with it and anybody who's perpetrated it or has the ability to perpetrate it or has it been involved in some situation coming forward and dealing with that is literally heroic and brave and would only make you in my eyes, a more valuable member of the community that needs to be supported tenfold because that transformation occurred. And so much of the anarchist, I feel like, foundation and why I identify so much with anarchism is because it really um, challenges us to rest everything on human nature I mean, it, it challenges to, to be to to transcend this 
very limited understanding of what is human and how people behave and like how nature just accounts for our behaviors. Um, and it puts way more responsibility on the human mind and the brilliance of the human mind to transcend what's actually possible. It's always about demanding something that's something we can't even fully conceive of yet. It's like, it's the futurist politic. Mm -hmm. And I just do not think that people are born to assault or are born to hurt or are born to compete. And I really do believe that that practices of harmony and love are so contagious and if you are used to practicing those things that is what becomes normal um and that's what can be you know can just reverberate and become contagious and part of our our world instead of the opposite um but you know just keep denying that anything happened or blame the person or call this person a crazy bitch or pull up some irrelevant text message or do whatever you have to do to make yourself feel better for doing nothing for the progression of humanity. And that goes out to every piece of shit loser weirdo who's been hiding from this issue. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just the people who have been perpetrating it, the people who have refused to even speak on the fact about it because they're facts. Mm -hmm. You can't have three or four different cases of something happening and not talk about it without looking like very suspicious in my opinion mm-hmm. yeah i obviously hold a lot of animosity it's very like because I, i'm just i'm not trying to be like oh i'm so much like i'm so like i'm so much more advanced than everyone blah 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 like it's really not about that it's not about me positioning myself as somehow more more moral having higher morals than anyone else that's like the opposite of anarchism you know but it's it's literally this is a dynamic like one person pops their head out okay that's cool no one's gonna follow two people do it maybe all right now you got a little like movement going and there's so many people out there who are terrible artists who are only gonna hop out of line when they see 75 percent of the line moving and if you're that kind of person you might as well just quit just just quit while you're ahead because your art's not going to me- mean anything in 10 years to anyone. Not, it's not going to mean anything in five months. Just stop. Like, because if you're not the person who's willing to take the leap, and this is like really, really, let's just, just to talk real, this is actually at rappers right now, like at every single rapper who like defends sexual ass- assailants in their community. Like your rap sucks. You're not, if you're not the type of personality to jump out of line and say some shit, and be the first person, you're not Nas, because Nas is the kind of person and the personality to, when confronted with an issue, to speak clearly about it, say it for what it is, have the capacity to, to see clearly. You're not Nas. You're not Jadakiss. You're not any... You're not a legend. You're just going to be somebody who's forgotten about. So either find the power in yourself to actually read and, and search and do personal work and don't just drug your brain out to the fact where you don't even feel anything anymore and just either quit or try to get your art on a level where it, I, I just I, I know I sound inarticulate right now but it's like I do not see the point of y'all putting out shit that doesn't mean anything 
that has no significance because you don't mean anything and you don't have any significance because you're a fucking pussy. That's all I have to say. So the way that you approach an issue like sexual assault is going to transcend that just that issue and reflect the fact that you really just reiterate and spit bars that you heard somebody else say before in a different order. Mm-hmm. You're literally standing in a line and no one's going to see you because there's 100 people in front of you and 100 people behind you. If you're not willing to go left or go right where people can see you and the shit's going to last and matter, quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And that goes for ASAP mob, period. Like, I'm sorry, but y'all had something going and right now, congrats. Like, you have nothing going. For a, for a crew that was innovating not only an economic model and a way of market, a marketing model, the actual sonic, the, the things that are coming out, the quality, you can, you can see the, the lack of innovation. No, totally. So we're going to wrap up now. Thank you so much for listening. For those of you that um, were able to, we really appreciate you being a part of this conversation with us. Again, this is a process. These are not answers. Um, and if you have you know, feelings about anything we put out there, we would love to hear from you. You can drop us a line. You can hit us up on Instagram etc. Yeah. So next week we're going to be talking about our fall collection and some projects that we have coming up celebrating the radical history of education movements, radical pedagogy, and all sorts of awesome de-schooling histories. Yeah. Really, really stoked about it. Thanks for listening. This has been Brujas World on mask.fm.